April 9, 2015, in Krishna House in Gainesville, Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 10, Chapter 62 and 63. <laughs> Although his father once presented Krishna with the earth, this Bana was a devotee of Shiva from his birth. He used his thousand arms to beat a drum as Shiva danced, and Shiva gave his blessings, making Bana quite advanced. The gods themselves were serving Bana. Shiva took the task of giving Bana's city the protection Bana asked. Puffed up with power, Bana one day meekly laid his head at Shiva's lotus feet and, being falsely humble, said, I bow to you, controller of the worlds, you are tree. Excuse me, you are the tree, fulfilling every wish of your aspiring devotee. The thousand arms you've given me are just a useless weight. Because, my lord, I want to find some worthy candidate. Aside from you, no one at all can give me a gross The elephants who rule the four directions also slight. When I stepped up and challenged them, for in the battle of lust, they smashed the mountains on the waves of the heads of stone and dust. When Shiva heard these haughty words, he angrily replied, When you confront my eagle, he shall devastate your pride. The foolish Bhattasura was delighted by this news, for he imagined anyone he fought was sure to lose. At that time, Bhana's daughter, Usha, resting with some friends, experienced the kind of dream in which the dreamer spends an amorous few hours in a lover's warm embrace. Her lover was a stranger, though, she clearly saw his face. The young man's face then disappeared, and Usha, in distress, cried. Just, just say it loudly. Where, 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 uh, I embrace the darkness. No, no, no. Where are you, my lover? As she came to consciousness, her girlfriend sat around her as she rose, disturbed and stunned, exceedingly embarrassed about what she had just done. Her dear friend, Chitraleka, confidentially inquired, Said Usha. I embrace the darkened man of mighty arms with yellow garments, lotus eyes, and every manly shaman. He made me taste his honey lips, and then he went away, upsetting me and leaving me to long for him this way. Said Chitraleka. I shall find this man who stole your heart, if he is in this universe, by use of mystic art. I know the face of every person, every other man, so I shall quickly draw each one, select him as you can. The mystic Chitraleka sketched a clear and perfect face of every male on every planet found in outer space. No sketch appealed to Usha till Pradumna's made her blush. Then Aniruddha startled her. It's him. It's him. She gushed. <laughs> 
slowly. <laughs> so Chitraleka, blessed with Yoga Maya's strength, it seems, through, uh, flew through a mystic skyway to complete her helpful scheme. When she arrived in Dwarka, security was tight, so Narada assisted her in getting in that night. When she sought out Aniruddha, sound asleep upon his bed. Again, her mystic yoga powers served her in good stead. She took the sleeping grandson of the Lord across the sea, where he awoke to find himself in Usha's company. When Usha recognized her love, her face lit up with joy. They slipped into the women's private rooms no man or boy had ever seen at any time. Alone with him at last, she worshipped, served, and pleased her man as days and weeks flew past. Presenting priceless garments, scents, fine beverages, and food, the Princess Usha kept up Aniruddha's happy mood. Concealed within the women's rooms, he did not seek release, for Usha's love for him appeared to endlessly increase. In time, the female guards began to notice Usha's waist expanding in a way no maidens could if she were chaste. Deciding it was better to directly tell her boss, they went to Bana. Somehow Usha's maiden. Okay, I think these were all lady servants, so all the ladies. Frantic Banasura rushed to Usha's private room and saw the Yadu family's pride, her unofficial groom. The handsome Aniruddha sat with Usha playing dice as if it were a normal scene you wouldn't think of twice. He looked like Cupid's very son, so sweeping were his charms, with dark complexion, lotus eyes, and formidable arms. A fragrant jasmine garland hung on Aniruddha's chest turned crimson by the kumkum powder gracing Usha's breasts. The angry Banasura, who had brought a score of guards, directed them to tackle Aniruddha fast and hard. Raduna's son stood resolute and raised his iron club, and soon the frightened guards ran off in pain and drenched with blood. The mighty son of Bali shattered Aniruddha's hopes by seizing him and binding him by use of mystic ropes. When Usha saw her lover's plight, she crumpled up and wept, not knowing this was Krishna's plan and what would happen next. Aniruddha banished all of his relatives and grieved. The monsoon season came and went. No message was received. At last, sagacious Narada informed the family that Bali's son held Aniruddha in captivity. I think Narada would be arrested for a conspiracy to kidnap here, wouldn't he? <laughs> When Balaram and Krishna, with Balaram and Krishna in the lead, the Yadus rushed surrounding Bana's city and they moved to maul and crush. The mighty Bana fumed to see the siege upon his home and came out with an equally large army of his own. Lord Shiva led the countercharge, his mission to protect the city of his devotee in every respect. His carrier named Nandi was a bull of massive size. His son named Kartikeya was prepared to pulverize. Raduna challenged Kartikeya to a vicious fight, and Shiva challenged Krishna with astonishing delight. But Shiva was bewildered, as Brahma one day had been when he made off with Krishna's friends and hid them in his den. 
Brahma and many other gods, their godly claims in flight, descended there from heavens to observe this shocking fight. They watched Lord Krishna's pointed arrows quickly drive away the many ghosts and demons on Lord Shiva's side that day. As Shiva started firing every weapon he could get, Lord Krishna counteracted every one with great effect. His rain attack, his rain attack left Shiva's fire weapon limp and drawn. He then released a weapon that made Shiva sit and yawn. This is Bhagavatam weapon. <laughs> With Shiva incapacitated, Krishna turned the fight to Bhattasura's frightened troops who scattered left and right. Pradumna poured persistent arrows down on Shiva's son until Kartikeya joined his fellow soldiers on the run. Lord Balaram destroyed his foes. The fight became a rout. So Bhattasura, furious, charged Krishna with a shout. Excited by the fighting, with his thousand arms and rows, the fearsome Bhana pulled and aimed five hundred deadly bows. Lord Krishna's arrows split each bow, and Bhana's driver fell. The demon heard Lord Krishna's conch shell bidding him farewell. Then Bhana's mother, out of her desire to save her son, appeared before Lord Krishna nude, her shiny hair undone. When Krishna turned his head away, like any gracious man, the frightened Bhana saw his chance. He quickly turned and ran. Just one remaining enemy persisted in the fight, the Shivajwara, Shiva's weapon, burning left and right. When Krishna saw this blaze personified resist defeat, he launched his Vishnujwara to offset its deadly heat. When Vishnujara froze him, Shivajwara cried in pain. With no escape in sight, he turned to Krishna and exclaimed, I bow before you of unlimited mind. Cause, the cause of creation is morning and night. You're perfectly peaceful. Indeed, you imbibe the absolute truth that the Vedas describe. As seeds turn to plants, so the soul takes a form to ceaselessly suffer his fate and perform material deeds as illusions impose. A cycle of pain only you can oppose. Because of the demons who have no restraint, you come to this world to watch over the saints. Unless one finds refuge in a lotus feet, like me, he will suffer distress and defeat. Lord Krishna said, O Shiva Dwara, all you say is true. Have no fear of my weapon. Henceforth, no one shall fear you. The Shiva Dwara bowed his head and took Lord Krishna's leave. But Banasura wanted war and ended the reprieve. His thousand arms crammed full with weapons. Bana charged the Lord and fired countless arrows as he furiously roared. So Bana hurled weapons. Krishna's chakra, spinning free, began to slice off Bana's arms like branches from a tree. So Shiva, seeing Bana's death was all but guaranteed, approached the Lord to try to save his foolish devotee. Oh, absolute truth, you're as pure as the sky. The moon is your mind and the sun is your eye. The seas are your abdomen, earth is your stride. Rama is your wisdom, and I am your pride. <clears throat> we gods all depend on your power and grace to care for the systems of planets and space, descending to earth for the descent, for the decent and just. You benefit suffering souls such as us. Original person, transcending, complete. No one need create you, no one can compete. Distorted by matter, our senses perceive your presence in various ways we conceive. The clouds cloak the sun when observed from the ground as matter obstructs you to souls who fall down. You nonetheless light up this world of distress 
and give what good qualities souls may possess. My family shall save me, bewildered men think. They swim in illusion and usually sink. The pitiful human who sullies your feet discovers it's only himself that he cheats. If one enjoys matter and sets you aside, he throws away life and accepts suicide. Brahma, other gods, famous sages, and we surrender ourselves to you wholeheartedly. You fashion, maintain, and destroy everything. Befriend us and free us from all suffering. Since Banaz pleased me, O merciful God, save him as you did in his ancestor, Prahlad. Lord Krishna, gently smiling, said, Lord Shiva, I agree. I certainly will do whatever you have asked of me. Prahlad <coughs> received my promise his descendants would endure, so I will spare this demon, Banas, or rest assured. His arms are gone, so Banas. Hefty. I just noticed there's a dot under the end on Banas or not Bana. Thank you. His arms are gone, so Banas Hefty Ego will abate. His arm is gone, for it has burdened earth with all its weight. This Bana, though, shall serve you well with his four remaining arms, and he shall never age or die. I promise him no harm. The demon Banasura bowed to Krishna head to ground and ordered that the grandson of Lord Krishna be unbound. A splendid chariot brought Aniruddha and his bride directly up to Krishna for a festive homeward ride. The party entered Dwaraka amid the sound of drums. The royalty, the priests, and common people all had come. The welcome for Lord Krishna and his grandson was complete with lavish arches, flags, and water sprinkled in the streets. Whoever rises early, well before the break of day, and reads, recalls, or speaks of the incomparable way Lord Krishna overcame Lord Shiva, thereafter shall meet with unremitting victory and never taste defeat. so I wanted to look particularly at text 42, which is where Lord Shiva is saying, if one enjoys matter and sets you aside, he throws away life and accepts suicide. First, we want to know what the benediction is for this story. So if you're ever in any kind of a battle of any kind, with any kind of enemy whatsoever, what should one do? Get up early and read this story. <laughs> uh, or just even remember this story. So I know we had a, a situation in North Carolina where there was a new property tax assessor and he wanted to collect more property tax than his predecessor. So he was going around to everyone who was exempt from property tax and trying to collect. So he went to our school, which was a 501c3 school, and we weren't supposed to pay any property tax. And he said, you guys should be paying property tax. And we eventually won, and I'm sure it had something to do with the fact that every morning we meditated on this story. (laughs) 
And there's a, a nice painting by a friend of mine, Madhava Priya, of the Shiva Jvara and the Narayana Jvara fighting. And so we meditate on this story, and we were victorious. So whether you, victor, whether you desire victory over some external enemy or some internal enemy, this is a very nice story, because as Lord Shiva says here, when he's listing who is who and who is who what in Krishna, how we can see Krishna in the world, hmm, 39 to 45, if you can take a look at that. So what is Lord Shiva saying? I am your what? Pride. Pride. So Lord Shiva is the deity of? Ahankara, false ego. <coughs> What does false ego mean? It means I am great, I am wonderful, I never make a mistake, everything about me is perfect. So even if our enemy is that, which is ultimately, frankly, our only enemy, we don't really have any other enemy, as Prahlad told his father, you, have, you think you've conquered over all your enemies, but your real enemy is within. Or as the Avanti Brahmana said, all of our problems really come from the mind. So whatever our enemy is, and which is ultimately this Ahankara, so this Ankara here in this battle is defeated by Krishna. And of course, the Ankara, is, the Ankara as Lord Shiva is the servant of Krishna. So here, a Lord Shiva, who is the personification of this false ego, says that it's basically suicide to worship matter instead of Krishna. This is a way we're defeating ourselves. We become our own worst enemy. Again, this is a story about becoming victorious over your enemies. But our own worst enemy is our pride, our sense that I am great and I am the center of everything, I am the center of the universe. Just like recently in the world, you know, in the last whatever, 150, maybe 200 years, human beings have decided that as the center of the earth and the center of the universe, that they can do anything they want to the planet. Isn't that a fact? Right? It used to be that human beings had some conception that you know you don't uh, cut off the head of the hen if you want the eggs, right? They used to have some idea of this. But now there doesn't seem to be any concept like this at all. So we want produce from the earth. Let's just pour our chemicals into the earth and force as much as we can right now. And if in the process of doing it, we poison the earth and nobody can eat food 200 years from now, well, I won't be here. What does it matter? <laughs> so that's the, the basic mentality, right? Whatever I want right now, whatever I want to have right now, never mind what the consequences will be in the future for me or for anybody else. Let me just take it right now. Why? Because I'm the Lord. I'm, I'm all-powerful. Everything's about me. So we, we see this on a societal scale. Of course, this mentality is particularly the mode of ignorance or tongue. Let me get whatever I want to now and uh, forget about the consequences. But it's also existent very much on a personal level, that everything's about me. I mean, I think it's quite interesting that each of us have this, this sense of being this body and being in this space and we have a sense of everything revolving around us, don't we? Yes? And we, we, we really have very little awareness of other living entities and other beings, except as they relate to us. We notice them when they come into our sphere of activity and what they can do for us and how I can impress them or manipulate them in some way. And we tend to be very self-centered, even in our care of others. We tend to care for others who will benefit ourselves. 
And even if the benefit is, is a mode of goodness kind of benefit, that, well, by doing something for them, I'll feel really good inside. I'll feel really balanced and equal poised and, and happy inside. It still tends to be about me and how I will feel. So this, Lord Shiva says, is just foolishness. And he should know because he's the deity in charge of the Sankara. So he really knows what it's about. And he says this is all foolishness. So why is this all foolishness? And if we examine with a little detachment, a little intelligence, we can see that we're not really getting any kind of substantial enjoyment from this me-centeredness. If we really think about it. So if we think about it on the gross external platform, in terms of how much happiness do I get from connecting my senses with their objects, from touching nice things and eating nice things and smelling and seeing and hearing and nice things. What they call you know, like a eye candy, right, or ear candy. So how much pleasure do I get from these things compared to how much pleasure I would like to get from these things? I would like to get unlimited pleasure, right? Am I the only one in this room who wants unlimited pleasure? No. Everybody wants unlimited pleasure, and of course the advertisers promise that. You know, eat this breath mint and you'll experience unlimited pleasure. Of course. It's not our experience. That even if I do something that is extremely pleasurable, it is still limited. It's limited in time, it has a beginning and an end, which Krishna talks about in the second chapter of Bhagavad Gita. He says this samsparsha boga, the enjoyment that comes from touch. And that doesn't mean sparsha, it doesn't just mean the touch of the skin, it means the touch of the ear, the eye, the nose, the tongue, etc. Something that's touching our senses. It has a beginning and an end. But we don't want it to have a beginning and an end. We want it to go on unlimitedly. So there, there's a disconnect between what we want and what we get. Also, the pleasures are not even always fully satisfying when we do have them. Sometimes you work very hard for some kind of pleasure, and then when you get it, you say, Ugh. I don't even like this. You know, and, and sometimes that's very major things. You, know, you may move to a new city and get a new job and uproot everything, and you get there and you go, I don't like this. And I like to tell the story of one of my uh, graduate school professors. He told us about how when he was 19, he attended a seminar about how you could become a school superintendent by the age of 33. And he, it was given you know, step by step, and he followed it to the letter, usually become a superintendent when you're about 50. And he did every single thing this man said. He, he said that he was told, only teach for two years no matter how much you like it. Mm. So that's what he did. After three years old, he loved teaching, he quit. Right? And at 33, he became a school superintendent. And what did he discover once he became a school superintendent? Like he didn't like it. <laughs> His wife hated it and divorced him. She said, I can't handle this kind of pressure. So, first of all, what we're enjoying, even if it's perfect, it's limited, right? Even if it's absolutely perfect, best pizza in the world, then it's over. And, then there's just no, and you can't even eat it anymore. Even if you wanted it to go on and on and on and on, and now you just can't. And then many times what you get isn't even satisfying. You get it, you go, oh, I spent so much money for this. I spent so much time for this. And a lot of things we just don't get at all, right? A lot of things that we want, we just simply don't get. <coughs> You know, you fall in love with that girl and somebody else gets it. And so, we, we, that's on the gross platform. 
on the gross platform that our material enjoyment is really not real. It's not really satisfying. We want this boundless, just like we were reading earlier about Usha and Aniruddha, where Usha's love for Aniruddha kept increasing. Well, and but our material enjoyment tends to decrease. You know, pizza for breakfast, pizza for lunch, pizza for dinner, pizza for lunch, breakfast for dinner, lunch, breakfast for dinner, and your enjoyment will decrease. This is why we do this thing called bogatiyaga. We enjoy, we renounce. We enjoy, we renounce. We enjoy, we renounce. Because unless you renounce, you can't enjoy anything. You have to, you have to get away from something for a while in order to enjoy it again. Why? Because the pleasure is not real pleasure. The pleasure is just the temporary absence of distress. If it was real pleasure, it would keep getting better and better and better, but it's not. It's just you have to feel this, this lack, and you get some little abatement of the lack, and you think, oh, no, I'm enjoying it. If it was real enjoyment, it wouldn't decrease in its it, it kick. Right? And not only does it decrease in its kick, it increases in its desire. So you enjoy something less and less and want it more and more. I mean, this is the, of course, addiction is particularly like this, where the enjoyment from the addictive substance decreases and the desire, the craving for the addictive substance increases. But in general, in material life, it's like this. And ultimately, these pleasures aren't even touching the self. As Krishna explains in the 5th and 13th chapter, we're just the observer. We're just the observer. It's, it's very much like... Uh, you know, winning a lot of money in a computer game, but your bank account doesn't change. You know, or, or watching a movie where the hero becomes victorious, but, but you're not victorious. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with you. And I, I like to give the example, one time I was taking a little nap on a fast day, I was fasting from food and water, and in my dream I was very thirsty. So I was, you know, pouring cup after cup after cup of water and drinking it over and over again. At one point in my dream, I chucked the whole gallon. And at that point in my dream, I said, what's going on? Why do I keep drinking water and I'm still thirsty? And then I woke up and I thought, oh, it was dream water. <laughs> so the, the reason that these things are not satisfying us is that they're all dream water. They're not touching our real selves. They're only interacting with our body. But the problem, and then let's look on the emotional level. Bhaktivinoda Thakur says there's three kinds of rasa. One is physical, one is emotional, and one is spiritual. And he calls the emotional celestial or heavenly. So then there's our emotional satisfaction, which is much higher than just physical satisfaction. And emotional pain is often much worse than physical pain. So on the emotional level, are we completely satisfied in our relationships? You know, we know we're not totally satisfied with pizza or with sex or with pretty views from the mountaintop, but what about our emotional relationships? Are they fully satisfied? Or do we have the same problem with them? I think we have the same problem with them, right? That they're temporary, people die, they move away, they don't love us anymore, Right? Or we get into a fight with them or something. It's, it's not this constant, unlimited, ever-increasing. And often they're disappointing. Often we think, here's a person I'll have a perfect emotional relationship with. And they're not, isn't it? Right? I think half of all murders is by people in intimate relationships. That's pretty bad. Right? you got to think that these are people who went into the relationship thinking, 
here's the perfect person who's going to love me. They go into the relationship, we would assume, you know, thinking here's someone who's going to kill me. <laughs> or here's somebody I'm going to want to kill, right? <laughs> and so they, they, and why? Because they become so disappointed. You know, I thought this would be fully satisfying, and it's not, and, and become so angry. This is described in the second chapter. The lust means anger, and from anger, delusion, bewilderment of memory. Or you just don't get the emotional relationship at all. You just don't get the connection at all. And again, even those things on the platform of the mind are also dream water. Because even that, we're not really connecting with our real self. You know, if any of you study things about personality styles, and we can analyze our personality in this world, you know, are we more into people or more into tasks? Are we more outgoing or are we more reserved? Are we more motivated by positive things? Like I noticed with your offenses, you're all the, all the positives. But some people, by the way, are more motivated by negatives. So, which is why the scripture is full of both negatives and positives. You know, Krishna is wonderful, the material world isn't wonderful. So what are you more motivated by? Do you more criticize yourself or do you more praise yourself? Or are we more cautious or are we more risk-taking? I mean, there's a whole list of like 50 different personality traits. But you know what? None of those are us. None of those are us. We have our own personality that's above this. So I'm relating. It's like two people in a drama. I don't know if any of you have done a lot of theater. I've done a lot of theater. So in a drama, you put on a costume, and you take on a persona to go with that costume, and you're relating to the other characters. Your character is relating to the other characters. It's not you relating to them. Right? Or I've never played computer games, but I assume it's a similar kind of thing. You take on a character, and other people have a character, and your character is relating to their character, but it's not you relating to them at all. There was an interview I once read with the um, husband of Meryl Streep, and he said he was sitting in a dentist's office before I had a Kindle, before there were Kindles. And, and her husband was saying, I feel like I've been married to thousands of different women. Because whatever role she would take in the movie or the play, she would take that home. So even our emotional relationships, it's, it's some facade, relating with the facade. It's not touching us. And no matter how authentic we try to be, it's not really satisfying. Because nothing done on the platform of the body or the mind is actually authentic. So we're working right now on a new publication of Ravana Daswaswami's Manashiksha, Instruction to the Mind. And in text 7, he talks about what is the root of all of these problems of dissatisfaction. He says the root is the desire for fame, the desire to be the center not fame itself, but the desire for fame, which is compared to a very low-class, promiscuous woman, the desire for fame. And fame itself is compared to the meat of a dog. So this very low-class lady, she wants to eat this dog meat, and she has an illicit lover who's named Pretense. So from this desire to be the center comes Pretense, is, is the point. This, this, this ahankara, this desire to be the center, this pride. I am the most important in the universe. I am the most important. My family is the most important. My city is the most important. My country is the most important. The human race is the most important. The earth is the most important. And therefore, we can do anything to anybody at any time because we're the most important. And from this comes this pretense, you know, I am the this, I am the that, all of our upadi, sarupadi, vinirutam all of our different designations, and then we're relating with these pretenses. 
So Lord Shiva says, why don't you take the real thing? Why don't you get the real thing? Because the ultimate reason that things don't satisfy us is not the material world itself. It's not really what's at fault. Like I was hearing Prabhupada saying that because God is, is great, he can't really have an inferior energy. None of his energies can really be inferior. <coughs> What's inferior is our sense that I am the greatest, that I am the best, that I am the center. That's an inferior way of thinking which leads to pretense. Can you understand why it leads to pretense? Because it's not true. Am I the center of the universe? Is that true? No. Is my family? Is my, my community? My city? My state? You know, is Florida the most important state in America? Is America the most important country in the world? Is the world the most important planet in the solar system? Is the solar system the most important in the galaxy? Is the galaxy the most important in the universe? Is this universe the most important? Bhagavatam tells us it's one of the smallest universes. Oh, universe. So it's not true. And when you want to say something that's not true, then you have to pretend. And when everything's based on a pretense, it can't be actually enjoyable. Does that make sense to everybody? Mm -hmm. So someone who's basing their whole life <coughs> on trying to enjoy through a mask is committing a kind of suicide. They're wasting their whole time. The whole life's just wasted. Everything we're doing is just wasted. It's all meaningless. And it has no meaning at all. It's no meaning, no value. We all want to have lives of meaning and value. But what is the value to that? If I'm pretending to be somebody I'm not, and you're pretending to be somebody you're not, and we're all just getting enjoyment that's only hitting the pretense, it's not going through the pretense and hitting me, then none of us are really experiencing anything. And nothing we do has any value for any of us. It's something like, you know, little children. Of course, little children's play has some value that is preparing them for adult life, but it's something like little children. Their play doesn't have any meaning in, in an ultimate sense, right? Oh, let's play that I'm the king and you're my subjects, or, you know, for us, the, those of us who are women, we would probably play that we got married or something like that. You know, or I'm going to play that I'm a fireman. And I, what is the meaning? And the parents are just laughing. And the parents are just kind of smiling at their kids. Oh, what a cute little play. And the children take it so seriously. Oh, he knocked over my train. You know, he started beating up his brother and you know, all this kind of stuff. But what is it? It's not a train. You know? Some pieces of wood or plastic that they're playing with. Now, why does do all these things appear very interesting to us? They appear interesting to us, as Lord Brahma says in the 14th chapter of the 10th canto, because they're all coming from Krishna's body. It's all Krishna's energy. It's all Krishna's energy. It appears interesting because it has some relation to the real. The problem is that we're using it in an unreal way. The problem isn't the energy itself. The problem is what we're doing it. Something like if I took this cup and instead of putting it in my mouth, I poured it on my head. Or if I tried to eat the cup. You know, there's nothing wrong with the cup, but it's meant to hold water, not to be eaten. 
Or another example I give, there's a door and there's a wall. If you walk through the door, you're happy. If you walk through the wall, you're unhappy. And and there's nothing wrong with the wall. It's, It's not that there's a fault in the wall, and it's not that the architect and the builder said, I want the people in this building to suffer. I really want them to suffer. And if they don't cooperate with my building plan, their heads will hurt. It's not like that. People often conceive of God like that. You know, if you don't surrender to me, you'll suffer because I want you. That's nonsense. It's just a simple thing. If you don't walk through the door, you'll get hurt because it's a wall. And that's not a malicious statement. It's not, there's no malice in that statement. It's simply a fact. The Lord Shiva is saying, Krishna says, if you use things in a pretentious way, if you use things in an egocentric way, you'll be miserable because that's not what they're designed for. That's not the truth. That's just not the reality. You're doing something false. As soon as you do something false, you suffer. As soon as you do something in a way that it's not designed, then it has some consequence. But again, it, 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 it looks enchanting. Something, again, like the reflection in a mirror. So these things look enchanting. It's like we have a mirror in front of us, and it has all these things, and we're trying to grab them, but it's just we just hit the glass. But it means that there is a reality. There is a reality. We wouldn't want unlimited happiness if there were no such thing. Why would we all have this desire? As I, as I often say, you know, fish don't feel thirsty. It's not their nature to feel thirsty. Whereas we do, because that's our nature. So the reason we feel a desire for this unlimited happiness and really satisfying, ever-increasing experiences is because that's our nature. That's the strongest evidence procedure that we're not something material. That our desires are for something that's impossible to get in material consciousness. If evolution were true and we were simply material beings, we'd be totally satisfied with the way things are. And you can try to talk yourself into it, but it doesn't work. You can say, well, I'm just going to be satisfied with how things are, and I'm just going to take, I'm going to try to find the good and the bad and enjoy what I can, but it doesn't work. You still get angry when you're frustrated. Right? When things don't work out. <coughs> so the solution here, why is it that one who meditates on this pastime never experiences defeat? It's not like just some kind of an amulet, you know, or some kind of, of magic. If you don't want to be defeated, you go and listen to this, and you won't be defeated. It's because when you absorb yourself in the pastimes of the Lord, then you're tasting the real pleasure. And look at how many things are in this story. I mean, what we want, it's all here. Right? We want things that are intrigue and mystery and scary. I mean, there's all these points in the story where it's, it's what a story. I mean, we have it, you know. So it starts off with this really proud demon, right? The evil guy, the really bad guy. And he just wants to defeat everybody. He's even trying to fight with the elephants holding up the universe, destroying the mountains, right? And then we have this love story, and such an amazing love story. How many of you could say you met the love of your life first in a dream? You know, what a story. 
Dream water. Yeah, yeah. But this wasn't dream water, actually, because these are real, these are, I knew this, uh, real. And then, of course, we have, we have some female hero in the story. I, there's some group, I don't forget their name, but they analyze media to see how many times women are portrayed in some sort of heroic role, and that's how they make movies and books and things like that. So here we have a female hero. She's a mystic. She's even able to enter into Krishna's city where Mahavishnu couldn't personally, you know, Mahavishnu had a hard time. He couldn't send one of his agents. He had to come himself because it was so well protected. And, and, and then a kidnapping. Right? And what, isn't it weird that Pujuna got kidnapped and then Aniruddha gets kidnapped too? Do you ever think about that? <laughs> Poor Rubini, you know? She has her son kidnapped and then her grandson. At least, at least Aniruddha was an adult when he was kidnapped. Pujuna was kidnapped right after birth. And four months he was missing. They're filing missing persons reports and looking all over for him. So you have this whole drama, you know, where is he? And then you have the, the, the arrest of, of Aniruddha and, and poor Usha. You know, here she's fallen totally in love and her father takes. So this is a, a very common romance story that someone falls in love with a person their parents don't approve of, right? Isn't this super common? I, mean, I don't think I've, I've ever watched a Bollywood movie, I think one time. <laughs> one of my Merkel students talked me to watching a Bollywood movie. But I, what I understand is that most of them have this theme. That's my understanding. That most of them have the theme that somebody, there's some love story between people that's not approved by their parents. That's where it all started, huh? Yeah, that's where it all started. Well, that, see, this is the reality, you know, Romeo and Juliet, right? This is the, the, the beginning. Oh, and then we have this battle. So if you like battles, you know, and, and heavy-duty fight scenes. You know, you think some of the most popular stories, um, like Lord of the Rings, a big fight scene, and what are some other, anyway. All these big, big fights, intergalactic battles. Yeah, like a movie. Yeah, this, I mean... Wouldn't you like to see this movie? Yes. Yeah. Who would like to see this movie? Or, you know, I to carry through the airways, and Usha's love increasing and increasing, and then Bono walks in, and Aniruddha's just playing with her, you know? Just oh, hi, father of my girlfriend. You know, really, he doesn't even bat an eye, and Madison's like, whoa. <laughs> You're just going on, I'm walking in, and you're just kind of going on, and then he captures him with a snake noose, and then we have Shiva Kartikeya on his peacock. I mean, they weren't just coming on, like, spaceships, they were coming on, on creatures, and, and, and these weapons. You know, I, th I think even in science fiction, they mostly show fire weapons, isn't it? Practically all of our weapons, of course, we have some of the weapons which are banned. We have biological weapons, chemical weapons, which have been banned internationally. But here they have a lot of kind of weapons. One, they have a wind weapon, a fire weapon, a yawning weapon. <laughs> Could you imagine that? A yawning weapon? You know, we should take this to our battlefields where we're fighting now, Afghanistan and Iraq. Put him to sleep. Put him to sleep. Way to defeat the terrorists. You know? <laughs> Could you imagine if we had at the, at the immigration yawning weapons that only affected terrorists? Wouldn't that be cool? You know, then you wouldn't have to go through all the security. They just have to put out the yawning weapons and all the terrorists. <laughs> right? And they had rain weapons and mountain weapons. I mean, wouldn't that be a cool movie to see? And imagine seeing it in an IMAX theater in 3D. <laughs> Guess 
why. We already have the, the receptor right in our heart, and because Krishna is in our heart, all of his leelas can manifest in our heart. And we can not only see this leela, we can enter into it. Talk about 3D, you know, 4D, 5D, 6D. We can actually enter into it and feel it and be there and have that as the reality. And once you have that as the reality, then the reflection loses all glitter. And once you taste the real, the false isn't attractive anymore. In general, as soon as we touch the authentic, the false loses its appeal. Just like in front of your book, you say, don't read this, it's real, and if you read it, you may not be interested in the false anymore. Yes, that's your warning. And Guru Goswami says, you want to be attached to false things, don't fall in love with Govinda. So, this is the, the sad thing, my dear friends. You can't have your hands full of the real when it's full of the false. If you're holding on to the ego and then I'm the center, you can't see the TV because the TV and the heart Krishna is the center. As long as I think I'm the center, I just can't, the, the, the reception doesn't work. It gets awful static. You know, I don't even get like one bar. You know? I'm the center! <laughs> and it doesn't come in. It, it's like it blocks it. You may say, well, this is, this is really hard because I'm really attached to being the center. So what am I going to do? So bhakti yoga is so nice. Bhakti yoga is so nice that you can still think you're the center but start to hear about Krishna. Just start to hear about Krishna. Even hear about Krishna because you want to defeat the tax assessor. You know, whatever, you want to defeat somebody external to you. So you just start to hear about Krishna. And as soon as you start hearing about Krishna, it knocks off some of the false ego. And you start getting attracted to Krishna. You hear about Krishna a little bit more, it knocks off more of the false ego. Start hearing about Krishna a little bit more, it knocks off more of the false ego. And before you know it, at least half your false ego is gone. And at that point, you become fixed in devotional service, there's no more hard struggle with determination, and spiritual life becomes very easy. So add Krishna, add Krishna, add Krishna, add Krishna. Become attached to Krishna as the center. Meditate on Krishna as the center. And so attracted, who wouldn't want to meditate on this pastor? Who wouldn't want to meditate on this pastor? And that is our process of bhakti yoga. Thank you very much, Two quick, um, two quick points to the uh, Shiva Jwar. You know the story about the boy named Shiva Jwar? He's a little boy that probably figured probably by giving him, uh, playing with him and bopping up again. Anyway, he, uh, his parents wanted to name him Samba. So they, at the hospital, they, they uh, said Samba. They said, what? Samba. What? Here, look at the book. It's right here. They showed him the Krishna book. But the nurse read Shivajwar, so he typed in Shivajwar instead of Samba. <laughs> and so they asked Prabhupada, our son is now named Shivajwar, what should we do? And he said, it's all right, he became a devotee in the end. <laughs> I wanted to ask, does anyone know the meaning of Chitraleka? It has some very special meaning. 
<coughs> but I don't remember exactly. Chitra, Chitra means hearts. And Leka. Leka is usually either uh, it can refer to an article or an ability to write, things like that. So she had this unlimited memory. Right. It implies that name, Chitra Leka, she had an unlimited memory. So I wanted to add, well, I have a question, but let's see if anyone else has any other questions. Should I have ended earlier than 8.30 for more questions? Prasad comes at 8.30 pretty promptly, yeah. Okay. Of course, a comment, you talked about, you know, once you have the real, the false, that's really, you know, kills you anymore. They've done, I'm trying to remember where I read it, it was in a, something about, you know, in advertising, that they're like subliminal kind of messages, you know, you'd see like a picture of somebody, but it's really something else. Mm -hmm. And once you've seen, I guess, the part of the image, you can't unsee it. You know what I mean? Like yes. one of them, most of us in advertising, it's all sexual. You know, but there's all a picture of like a guy or something. Like you just see a guy standing there, but if you really look, it's like there's something else in the photo. You know, and it's like once you see it, even if you come back to it later and look at it, it's like you can't unsee what you've mm -hmm. already seen. So it's something. That's just gonna be yes. Well, that's that's something that we don't necessarily uh, tell people. Sometimes I tell new people, you know, you can try Christian consciousness, you can always go back. That isn't really true. No. <laughs> uh, of course, if you, if you were extremely determined, you might be able to. You know, if you were really, really, really determined. Right. Should we stop here? Some of the students have Okay. Shilaprabhupada Ki Jai. Uh, Next time, maybe 820.